Hi everyone, welcome back to Think About It with me, Victoria Zarenka. It was a pleasure to speak to Dr. Raul Jandel. Dr. Raul is a neurosurgeon, neuroscientist, and best-selling author. From the inception of this show, I knew I wanted to talk to a brain surgeon, so I was really excited about this one. Our conversation is full of take-home advice about how you can boost your brain and improve cognitive performance, and I think you're going to love it. Thank you so much for joining my show. I am really, really excited for, for our talk. Can you just maybe start with like your whole journey of how how you got into being being a, a brain surgeon? Um, and I just would love to know that. I'm happy to talk to you about it. And there's an interesting connection between us. They told me, I didn't look you up. I don't like to look people up. I think it steers the conversation, but they did mention that you were from Belarus. And originally in March of this year, I was supposed to be in Minsk doing surgery at a hospital. Mm -hmm. when this whole year unfolded yeah and i canceled that trip and i'm waiting to do that trip again so when i got this email from your team i was fascinated to connect with somebody from that area i've been to uh ukraine many times i've been to that part of the world doing brain surgery on children but how i got there was very haphazard it was it wasn't conventional i dropped out of college at uc berkeley i was working as a security guard i went back in uh -huh. uh, finished my degree, then went to medical school. Yeah. And in medical school, you get to choose. Are you going to go into fields that write prescriptions or are you going to go into fields that write prescriptions but also do surgery? And mm -hmm. uh, to me, the physical aspect, the performance, made me fall in love with surgery. And then I, I kept moving through and ended up in neurosurgery. And a decade later, I'm planning on going to Minsk, Belarus next year. Do you feel like traveling different places, obviously – you know, as, as, a, as a tennis player, I feel even though I've been playing on the tour for about 17 years now, I still feel every day like a student and, mm -hmm. and I learn about the game and I want to learn more and that hunger for learning. I think that what also develops, you know, a, a certain motivation for, for, for me. And I wanted to ask you, how do you feel after so many years of, of practicing medicine, because I know there's also people who just do research and then don't necessarily doctors that, that do practice. So how much of a student do you feel um, to this day, when you, especially when you also travel to different places? Yeah, that's an insightful question because, you know, surgery can get you much, you know, surgeons and athletes, I think there's a big overlap. Whereas law, it may be irrelevant when you leave this country, surgical skill is relevant internationally. We still call the instruments by the same name. We don't actually have to speak the language, but the words we use to describe the anatomy are similar. And then there's also the element of travel where you see people fighting the good fight, taking care of patients who don't have resources, and they do it for the love of the game, if you will, love of the art and the craft. And so to me, travel and seeing surgeons in other countries, uh, such as Ukraine or Bolivia or Peru, it really lets me see my life in a new light. And that's the best education to realize how good I have it here. I mean, some of the things in the operating room that we ask for, and some surgeons get irritable if they don't have, mm -hmm. they, they wouldn't even go in that direction, the other countries. I mean, I've seen them work with tools that are 
10% of what we have. And, and they care for the, the instruments like their children. They come out in, these, in cloth that's tended to. So it just makes you look differently at the privilege I have here uh, where my tools are better than the tools of equal and sometimes even greater surgeons in other countries. So I guess for you as an athlete, it would be like watching people from other countries not having the, the proper shoes or the gear or the training and still competing and maybe even outperforming. So for me, it's a, it's, I have tremendous respect for people in other countries who do it under trying circumstances. Yeah, I have, I have seen many times some of the videos of like little kids that they're playing, you know, on the side of the street and they have no shoes. Their racket is like, you know, it's not even a racket, but the emotion that comes with those videos are so pure and so happy that when you look at yourself sometimes it's like okay well i have the best rackets in the world i have the best equipment in the world and sometimes i can't that get that happy so it is it is all about what's within you and how you see things and how what perspective do you do do you have do you have on life and when i remember myself because i grew up also not i didn't grow up privileged i remember actually when I wanted to play ping pong and we didn't have any rackets. So we used the like a, a plastic cards, uh, plastic boxes of racket uh, strings we would find it like in the trash cans and we would play with them and we had the best time. So every time I remember those stories when, you know, I feel a certain way that kind of helps me to, to remember the, the joy of like simple things that, 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 that you have, uh, in life. I love that. And my, I have three sons. They're 14, 15, and 19 now. The 19-year-old is 6'1". And, and I remember when they were growing up, I used to say, like, let's, let's try to hit the ball, ten, you know, baseball, with yeah. like a stick or a broom handle. Because in other parts of the world, that's how they train. Yeah. So they get the timing down with tools that are subpar. Yeah. I think it's a great way to develop skills. So when I started operating in other countries, when I would come back to the States, um, I needed less of the tools here in our modern operating rooms. And when things would go wrong or I'd have to navigate a difficult case, having done it with limited resources and tools actually fortified me, gave me a certain confidence. So, you know, for you, it's joy. For me, it's that, that flow, that experience that comes from, from performing under pressure. I love that. That's meditation for me is where you focus, but not, and not distracted. And that's a unique feeling. I think performers get, whether it's rock stars or athletes. And I think complex surgery is also something like that. It's a release of maneuvers. It's not a checklist of going through like repairing an engine with 150 steps. No, there's a lot of uh, flexibility and uh, creativity when you're performing. And I love that. I always, I mean, I always tell people I couldn't be an athlete or a rock star, so I had to settle for being a surgeon. <laughs> well, I think what, what, you, what you do is a bit more important than, than uh, for, for people's lives than what, uh, what we do. When you talk about, you know, doing brain surgery, to me, it would be like, oh, my God, like I'm in charge of somebody's life. So it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's not a playing a tennis match. Like I play a tennis match and... I lose. I mean, that's okay. Uh, whatever happens, but here you kind of cannot lose. Like there is no, there is no. Uh, that's a different type of responsibility, especially having responsibility over somebody rather than yourself. But my question is, like, in terms of 
how your brain uh, perceives that information, does that feel like difference or it's still kind of in the same focus and the same uh, reaction to it? From my understanding and my reading, performance, you have to tease it out. Um, it's an intellectual performance, like a chess match. I think creativity and performance get put into the same buckets when there's physical performance, yeah. where there's intellectual performance, there's performance under pressure that's physical or intellectual. There's just a lot of layers. And what I like about surgery and sports and, and some, some people who do things like pilot airplanes under pressure is that it, it's, it's sort of the, the space between physical performance and intellectual performance. You can't be all hands and you can't be all smarts. It, it's something in between. And for me, what I add on top of that is an element of risk. Now, my life is not at risk, but my patience is. Mm -hmm. And I think that for, for me, that brings me to the moment. I always joke, joke that if I was a pediatrician, I'd be horrible. I'd be like, oh, kid's got a cough. I'd just be negligent almost in my attention. But when it's me that's responsible, when I meet somebody and they're talking to me much like yourself and I say, okay, now I'm going to put you under anesthesia next week and open your skull and perform surgery and get you through that. There's ownership with it. There's risk with it. For me, that brings out my attention. Mm -hmm. And there's two things going on in the mind. There's attention, but there can be too much attention. That's stress and anxiety. You're just too dialed in. You're thinking about it too much. For me, so the attention has to be there, but not too much. And a lot of people think, you know, that, that it's some special focus. But for somebody who's an elite athlete or an elite surgeon, the skill is actually not dialing up attention, but dialing down distractions. Yeah. And so there's things your brain is putting out to do, but there's also the things coming in, oh, the lights are on, or this moment matters, or if I win, or if I perform well, my career will advance. Those distractions can actually put your attention in a spiral. So when you look at the brains of people who are performing well, they're less frenetic, they're less chaotic. They're actually using less energy because they're letting habits and rituals and well-developed skill release itself. Just like imagination and performance, it has to be released by trimming down the distractions. So I think that's a nuance that people forget or don't fully appreciate is it's not that elite performers have greater focus, it's they have greater ability to not notice distractions. That's a really good point because I always think when when I perform and stuff, it's like your body's active but your mind is calm because if it goes the other, if if the if the uh, mind becomes active, your body becomes you know slower because it's it's functioning a bit the like the system overload right. And, 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 you, and you're absolutely right with, with distractions. It's a, some sort of, you know, when people talk about doing meditation and what, what do you think about? I've been asked that recently about my tennis match. Like when you do your meditation, what do you think about? It's like absolutely nothing. That's the whole point. The whole point is to be able to just be clear and, and have the moment of, of quiet because we're always running through things and we're imagining things with, if, I, if I'll make an analogy on tennis where you overthink a shot and you have one shot and then all of a sudden you, you, you thought about one option, I'm gonna do this. 
And then, oh, maybe I can do another one. Maybe I can do another one. And then you have two, three options and then you're, you're miss. And then you miss for sure. So, so it's just that, that particular moment of, I would say, I think it's a, it's a simpler way for somebody who knows how to block out distractions, but for people who maybe just starting to practice that, that exercise is the focus on just one simple objective, right? So that's, so then it's ultimately blocks out the distractions, but sometimes it's hard to, to, to explain. And I, I would love for people to, to like, who listens, like to try maybe to understand that little exercise that, that can happen and that you can do. And I've watched one of your interviews where you talked about brain training, right? And when we talk, when I hear about brain training in terms of a global message, a lot of times that applies to athletes, right? Because that's where you want to elevate your performance, where you want to gain that little advantage of, um, you know, for yourself. But it doesn't always talks about brain training as for your daily life, right? And um, one of the things that was really interesting for me to hear is when you explain about uh, just try to do something with left hand, for example, if you're a right-handed person, try to do to activate certain cells that maybe you, obviously you have them, but they're sleeping and they're not activated. So can you maybe? Walk me a little bit more through on on the importance of brain training for everybody, and especially what's I think one of the very interesting point for me is for kids um, how how important that is because I have a son you you're obviously a parent too, but something that I want to learn for you know how I can help my my son because where I came from that was not really a case of you know developing your brain through training it was more about doing this and that just work hard and everything <laughs> might might happen or may not happen yeah. but just 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 to educate myself and also like people who are going to be listening of of the importance of uh that those exercises let's break that into two things though there's what we were talking about early elite performance Mm -hmm. Elite performance always be begins with elite skill. So there's no way to skip that step. It's like people ask me about creativity. Well, you got to, before you connect all the dots, you got to know all the dots. So if we leave that here and we think about, okay, brain training, cultivating uh, your brain, which can get you towards elite performance if you can release it under pressure. Okay, But if we back up and say brain training, I think, what we're missing is an understanding of what's what's the design in here there is a design yeah and then there's something above the design but there is a structure there are connections there's a biology there's a chemistry and there's electricity in there and what i always tell people is i want to get away i've fallen in that trap i want to get away from wiring we're just using wiring we're wired for this we're hardwired for this because we're in the age of computers. Decades ago, they thought there were gears in there when machines were more dominant, right? So the true way to think of the brain comes from how neuroscientists have been writing about the brain for decades in our journals, and is to think of it as a garden or an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And to begin with, you are born with more seeds and more plants than you hold on to. So our children at age one had more brain cells 
than they do when they become teenagers or adults. That's not a bad thing. So you're, you're born equipped with a lot of potential. It's a crude potential. It's not finely developed. And you can see that as they learn to walk and talk. That means things are happening. Use it or lose it is a, you know, sort of a casual way to think about it. But the brain is an ecosystem. It's a garden that has to be cultivated. You cultivate it by learning things. You cultivate it by experiences. And you cultivate it by taking on challenges that you usually don't. That's where using the left hand, learning a new language. I always tell people, you don't actually have to learn the language. You just have to try to learn the language. Mm-hmm. You don't have to actually learn how to play the instrument, but the process of learning will cultivate more of that neuronal garden. And then when you have that lush garden that you built up, it's there for you when you get older as it starts to wither. So in the later stages of life, it could prevent dementia. That is one way to think about it is building that cognitive reserve. But the broader, the broader and the more lush and the more detailed your garden is, If you do gymnastics for all kids at age four, or if you learn multiple languages, if you learn a musical instrument to coordinate your hand and your thinking, you're for your, not compared to somebody else, but for your former self that didn't do that, you're in a better position to be an elite athlete. You're in a better position to be an elite surgeon. You become more equipped with that ability. And that's what brain training does. It's a habit. We're always talking about cosmetic stuff. Why not an element of cultivating all those neurons, that lush environment that's inside our mind. We develop so much like called baggage, right? That that you hold on to and you kind of can can't let go of that. So how how does that in terms of like brain cells, how does that help to, I don't know, um, maybe slower slow down the process of of development or something? Because you hold on to something and you yeah. don't necessarily make the room for for something else. And so, so that was the kind of interesting part for me to understand. So in the beginning, we were talking about like the structure and the flesh of the brain. Mm-hmm. But the way it communicates, the way that garden communicates is more like a cluster, of, a giant cluster of jellyfish. Electricity sparks through that electric garden. Mm-hmm. So the design under a microscope is a garden branching neurons that are connecting with each other. But if you look at how they talk to each other, those branches, they don't touch. They stop and they release chemicals like dopamine or serotonin, things we've become familiar with. Mm-hmm. And the, the neurons, they run with electricity. So there's electricity inside our skulls. It's measurable. Mm-hmm. And that electricity is the thoughts. So you have to go from a garden but the flows through it aren't like wires. It's not left and right. It's like the way a school of, you know, a flock of birds or a school of fish or aurora borealis. There's energy flows through that electric garden. And so thoughts and habits are energy flows that get stuck in a rut. Mm-hmm. Much like a ski slope where you're always taking, you know, there's a preferential way to get down from that mountaintop. Mm-hmm. Bad habits, traumatic experiences, the energy wants to run in a certain direction. Despite your effort, the trauma of your youth or the struggles you've had or the bad experience on the court, it almost becomes easier for it to slither down that way. Mm-hmm. And so in the beginning to change those habits, it takes work. You have to sort of create a new desire or preference for those energy flows in your mind. And that's where counseling, talking, psychological therapy, 
all those things are a way for you to change the direction of the electricity in your mind. So that's where it takes effort in the beginning, but it's not a lifelong effort. Yeah. That's where people can heal from trauma. That's where people can get over a bad sporting experience or a, a difficult case in the operating room. So it's not permanent, but it does take effort in the beginning to redirect the energy and the thoughts in your mind. Yeah, and it's and it's just like anything else physical that you do when you recover from physical injury. You know, the first is is a smaller step where you get tired after five minutes, then you get tired after ten minutes, and then and then it kind of uh, goes on from there. But um, what I wanted to ask you about the stress uh, trauma recovery, uh, maybe something about the research of how um, what part of brain does like activate most when you have a, a traumatic experience? Because I know when they do um, like the CT scan of the brain for, for research, there's always like the one part that start, start flashing a bit more than others. And so I wanted to learn a bit more of that. Me personally, not the field I'm in, I'm trying to move away from you even using the word brain scans. They're very important. We've learned a lot from it, but it gives it a sense of computers and wiring. And what I would say is, if you look at other mammals, they don't have these foreheads that we have. Mm -hmm. And that's because the, the prefrontal cortex, just think of it as the ridges on the surface where, you're, where most of the thought and most of the creativity and most of the um, intellectual activity happens. It blossoms so quickly that to fit into our skulls that it had to be folded like an accordion. That's why you have those ridges when you think of the iconic enigmatic structure of the brain and it pushed literally pushed our foreheads forward remodeled the skull so it could fit inside mm -hmm. and so that's that's how we usually think of the brain deeper inside which all mammals have many mammals have actually is the visceral brain and that's where you have these things where you don't want to think if you're by edge of a cliff you don't want to think if you're by a poisonous animal you react, you have an instinct. Yep. So when you have trauma, the trauma goes to those areas and they've given names to them, amygdala, different things like that. But I call it the emotional brain or the visceral brain. So that's there for you to be quick, to avoid dangers, to survive, right? But it's also there where you get imprinted too deeply if you have a traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And so how to move past that is again, to engage this, this ecosystem, this, this intersection of the emotional brain and the thinking cognitive modern brain. Yeah. And through revisiting it in a controlled environment, through having a therapist or a counselor, you can start to say to yourself, listen, that's not a real snake. That's a rubber snake. You don't have to jump every time. So you know you have the ability, right? You don't, you don't get fooled by a trick spider if you have fear of spiders or snakes over and over again, right? Something happens. You tell yourself, hey, don't, don't, don't listen to that emotion. Don't let that reaction set in too deep. So you know that interplay exists. Now, can you apply that to, hey, if you were hurt in, in an alley or if you were hurt in a certain place in the world or a certain time of day, you want to be reactive in the beginning. You just don't want to be reactive years later. And that process can be thought down, but it does take effort. The possibility is there. That's just what I want people to know, that it can be done. Your, your traumatic experiences can be put behind you. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I read a lot about like emotional. You have emotional pain that triggers physical pain. And it's it's very interesting to understand that sometimes you feel pain, but you don't know where it's coming from. And, and I had those also with some of the injuries you know sometimes you you get injured in sport and it may be related to completely different uh topics and the actual sport that you're doing and so what is your view on like emotional emotional pain that brings later on for for a physical sometimes like really critical physical abilities yeah that's also these are first of all brilliant questions <laughs> and and the thing about the DNA, I mean, the word is great. Now it's, you know, it's the DNA of our corporations, the DNA. It's just thrown around a lot. Yeah. DNA is not our destiny. It's just a certain direction where the compass and the ship is pointing. But through your experiences, right? When they say nature and nurture, you know, nature being DNA, nurture really should be experiences. So just because you're born with a, a, a certain genetic profile, doesn't mean that's how you're going to end up physically, intellectually, emotionally. Your experiences, your choices can guide what part of that DNA is read. It's like a cookbook. Every, every cell has the entire cookbook, essentially. Not every cell, but almost all. And so which recipe you make determines whether you become a brain cell or a heart cell. So there's a lot of plasticity is a simple word for it, but there's a lot of flexibility in your fate. And I think that's first, that's again, that's to me, that's an empowering concept. Mm -hmm. And then when you bring in emotional pain and physical pain, that's, that's also a really cool question because in the beginning, I used to talk about, you know, people say mind, body, and all these things. If you look at a picture of, I think it was in the bodies exhibit in London, I was there with my son. It was really cool. It was like in 2019. And it, it looked like it was a human with just the blood vessels. But no, it's actually the, it was nerves. Every millimeter of your body has nerves. So it's not like the brain is separate and then there's the body. And the, the nerves extend around the heart, the bowels, underneath your fingernail. They're everywhere as much as there's blood vessels. So there is no separate mind-body. And what happens is um, brain anxiety can send down shivers to where you feel physical anxiety. Similarly, physical pain can send up obvious signals uh, of, of, of pain. And if you do that under emotional situations, yeah. it feels different. So let's take surgery, for example. Mm -hmm. If you get in a car accident and, and you shatter your arm, patients tend to feel differently about that. If you get in a car accident, and you shatter your arm, and you weren't wearing a seatbelt, they feel even more, you know, they they're really affected by that because then there's an element of this didn't have to happen, right? So those are emotions and guilt coloring the pain. But if you come for surgery and I tell you, look, we're going to numb you up. We're going to do this. We're going to fix it. You're going to hurt afterwards. That pain registers differently. So it's inseparable what we feel from what we think and what we think from what we feel. And the best way to think of that is it's not mind-body. It's just, it's just all central nervous system. It's all... It's all mind. And that's why you feel butterflies in your stomach, even though you have anxiety because you're going to perform somewhere, but yeah. you feel in the pit of your stomach, right? Why, why does that happen? Because it, it's just one giant nervous system. And, and, and it's, yeah, it's, it's really 
amazing. And me and my, my physio, he was, he, he kept trying to kind of tell me this many, many years ago, but it didn't, I couldn't really understand. I said, what do you mean? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm feeling my leg. He's like, yeah, but okay. But you know, there's maybe a little bit more to that. I was like, no, I'm just feeling my leg. Like, stop asking, (laughs) stop asking me uh, more questions. And then he told me this story about that there was uh, a guy who lost his limb during the war and, but he still feels like he has, he has a leg. Because in the brain, like, he's like, no, I am actually moving my leg. And they're like, well, there is, there is no leg. And he still has pain in the leg that he doesn't have. So it was like, you know, the, the, the mind like can create extraordinary things and can also make devastation for, 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 for a person. And, uh, that's really, I mean, it's, it's much more of a complex issue than just the mind and body difference. And I've also heard that they're doing like, oh, uh, well, you've done the, uh, what's it called? Like awake surgery, right? And also they do like non, no anesthesia surgery, just working through your brain. So you don't necessarily feel pain. I've heard a bit about this and so it's really scary to me because I was a dentist yesterday and I said, please numb this because I have a dentist trauma <laughs> since a child, but I'm working on it. But it is, as I said, it's like, it takes a long time for you to, you know, not, not, it takes a lot of effort to start, not, not necessarily a long time, but a lot of effort to start and not be scared. So can you, can you talk a little bit more about the wake surgery and then the, the new way of people like doing, not doing anesthesia and, and really working with the brain to kind of block it out, right? I would say block out the, um, the fear, the, uh, the, the pain stressors, but I would say more the fear, right? Yeah, it's, this is interesting because what's happening in this conversation is is sort of my new purpose. You know, I'm I'm almost fifty years old, and I'm starting to reflect a little bit more. I've taken care of a lot of patients and mm-hmm. had my own experiences and had my own challenges and different things like that. Mm-hmm. And what what I love about this conversation is that it's it's not trying to get to an answer. So in the beginning, it's always take this pill, don't do this, do 20 push-ups, eat this, one blueberry. It's just, you know what, the complexity and the nuance yeah. is liberating. Mm-hmm. And everybody should realize we can handle some complexity and nuance in 2020, that it's globally being placed upon us, this great weight that we're under, right? So how to turn that into growth, not always, not automatically. I think that's the kind of conversation we need to have. And so the biggest window into how the brain works is to actually tinker with it when the patient is awake. And the way that works is we talked about the nervous system and the brain and all those nerves that are out there. It feels our brains sense from those tentacles, if you will. Mm -hmm. So if the skull is off and you're awake or I'm awake and we touch the raw brain, the naked brain, you won't know that it's being touched if somebody else touches it. Right. And so it doesn't feel pain directly. It feels pain through its extensions, the nerves that come out of your face. And so what we can do is numb people's scalp up, mm-hmm. put them under anesthesia, mm-hmm. open the scalp, lift off the bone, expose the brain, and then turn off the anesthesia. 
So they're still locally numb, like a dentist, but in the scalp. And then we can electrically tickle the surface of the brain. And why we do this is because some things, we, they're not precise between you and me. We know language is on, you know, usually on the left temporal lobe here, but for you, it might be a little bit more forward. And for me, it might be a little bit, you know, behind that. Mm -hmm. And so every person has to be mapped yeah. for their language spot before you dissect around it. So it's fascinating because along with that, they'll report other things. So when you're tickling to say, you know, so you ask them to count one, two, three, four, and they keep counting and then you zap lightly. They don't feel it. And they keep counting and you say, hey, that's a safe zone. Then you move down a few millimeters, one, two, three, four, and they'll just stop like it's the mute button. It's mm -hmm. called speech arrest. You know, that's an area relevant to speech. Don't tinker with that. Don't mess around with that. Mm -hmm. But they also report other things. And for like 60 years, people have been writing about, they hear music, they smell burnt toast. Sometimes they have visions. Sometimes they have religious thoughts, uh, spiritual thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that mapping, the things you learn outside of the, of the work that you're there to do, to me is the most fascinating way, more than brain scans and all those things, to think about how, how the mind works, right? And that's what awake brain surgery is teaching us about ourselves. And I'm lucky to have had patients that I've been able to help with that. But I love reading about what all the other neurosurgeons are doing and what they're finding yeah. through that type of surgery. We can now take out a part of somebody's brain, grow in a Petri dish, modify the genes so it turns into a neuron and then put it back into somebody that's got Alzheimer's. And those are the kind of experiments that are going on. And to, I love that part of it, the biology, mm -hmm. because again, it's an ecosystem and it's gardening. And if we think about it as biology and not wires, we'll understand how you can replace parts of people's brains from somebody else's brain. I mean, that's a fascinating concept. I and mean, whether it works or not, where it's, you know, whether it will work or not. I mean, to me, that's just, just, there's no higher level of human interaction. One brain trying to fix the other brain. One brain trusting another brain to open up their brain. Yeah. Not just look at it, but manipulate it, improve it. Uh, take chances with it. I, I love the, the storytelling behind that as much as the biology. One of the most fascinating thing was for me that how they can cut out the bad genes now with the, with the yeah, research that came out. And that's just, that's just crazy. Like how you can actually help, you know, when kids are born and you can just cut out some of the genes that they don't develop into, into the uh, big uh, uh, disabilities. And then again, it brings, should it be done? right? Like engineering life. So for me, I never, people keep talking about the universe and the cosmos. To me, the, the most interesting universe is in our skulls. And it's one that we can, we are experimenting with and manipulating. And just a conversation can change the electricity of your brain. And that electricity can go back and make certain parts of the garden grow and not grow. So to, I think there's a lot of storytelling in brain science. And that's what I'm, I think going forward, what I'm trying to do is lead people uh, seeing themselves in a new light. What you do with it is up to you. I'm not trying to say do this or do that. Yeah, exactly. Seeing ourselves in a new light. So you, 
you feel more empowered with with what's inside you. And you also talked about uh, different hormones and specific one. What was interesting for me, you said about dopamine that everybody talks about it as as a, as a happy hormone, and you said it's much more complex than that and i feel like all the hormones are much more complex than that because uh when uh, i think majority of people hear adrenaline they think about just the rush you know and adrenaline works in a lot more ways and in not necessarily in good ways <laughs> sometimes um so can you can you talk a little bit more about the uh, importance of understanding like the hormonal change and and obviously in some people when when there are disbalance that creates a lot of you know mental instability and some mental health problems which um i feel now also it's very difficult time um so i think the more people sometimes understand how important of the mental health is and how you you are able to to help that to train that uh obviously some cases are are not and they're can be genetic and they can be progressive things that that are uh I, I don't want to call them disability that's just part of who you are uh but in a lot of cha- a lot of cases that you are strong to be able to you know balance your hormonal uh let's say map you can if if I can use that word yeah and uh can you just please talk a little bit more about that the the question is yet another great question with no simple answer but it, but let's look at it differently so we now we talked about the brain as a garden an electric garden and think of chemicals and hormones as the fertilizer or as the soil that's that's the those are the components that the neurons and brain are floating in so there the exchange isn't just between neurons spraying electricity and chemicals at each other it's also the milieu the environment bathing it with certain hormones hormones it releases onto itself the brain has its own pharmacy when you win a match or somebody else does cocaine it's the same chemical context is different but your brain can release it on its own um when you're suffering your brain can release opiates your your body has a cannabinoid system the the marijuana chemical fits perfectly with something inside us we evolve with these plants so just because some people take them from outside it doesn't mean you can't actually release them on your on the inside from the pharmacy within your body and that gives you a sense of well what am i doing when i'm stressed out my heart rate is up what is what's going on there and so these responses we have to stress to excitement they're important you want to be excited when you find food after not eating for days you want to be uh scared when you go into a cave that your memory failed you and there were deadly beasts in there right that's, that's sort of the context in which these our brains evolve at the same time just like you can tell yourself you don't need to jump when you see this thing that looked like a snake it's artificial it's halloween it's not you don't need to react to that yeah. similarly you don't have to react even to the hormones mm-hmm. your body is releasing so there are these kids who have some uh, genetic condition they grow a tumor in the adrenal gland that releases cortisol the stress chemical some people are stress hormone people think of it as they're not stressed out they're calm but they have a lot of cortisol yeah. because that part of your brain 
that push the foreheads forward, you can tell yourself, don't jump when you see the snake. It's not real. Don't run out of the movie theater when you see somebody with a chainsaw. You're in a movie theater. But do run if you see somebody in the street with one. That nuance to take the environment as well as almost reflexive chemicals and hormones that surge inside us, it can all be contextualized with our thoughts and our efforts. So dealing with stress, again, is a way of, um, the way to deal with stress is to actually look at it, think about it, and tamp down those emotional responses, and maybe not believe even the hormones and chemicals that are surging inside you. That's the, that potential is there, but for most of us, um, it's gonna be a lifelong challenge to constantly tend to, should I respond, should I be stressed out? But my hope is that people walk away with this understanding that it's possible. Just like you don't jump at, when you see a snake and you don't jump out of a movie theater, there is thought that can control your emotional and hormonal responses. That, that balance, that balances, you know, that's what makes life a thrill. Definitely. And I feel like people in general react best to an example. You know, it's, it's very, uh, I, I've noticed it's very hard for people to just listen and then be like, they're motivated for a day or two, right? Then it's like, yeah, well, I'm going to do that. But then that's just everyday practice that you, you kind of have, have to do. But when you, when you see an example, and I think the best way to show is probably uh, sports because people weren't sure, oh, can I jump and I t can I touch the rim? Can I jump over six six uh, feet? Can I, can I do this? Can I, can I not do this? And once you see that that's possible, you know, people in Paralympics, I just watched the I just watched the documentary about the Paralympic athletes and I was so inspired by this, like how amazing they are and what they can do with their resilience. So that's just an, so when somebody sees an example, they are able to do that. But unfortunately, like some, there is not enough example of your mental strength because it's invisible, right? This is just an invisible tool. And so you're trying to show that, okay, I'm happy. And people ask, oh, what's your secret, right? Well, there is no secret. It is just really a daily work, something that you, that you have to practice. And it doesn't mean that things don't happen to you or, or it's just how you really, what you said, how you react to it. But you have to practice. It's not that, you know, like athletes, they say, oh, you don't, you're not, you don't feel nervous. Of course, everybody feel nervous. Why wouldn't I? Like, it's not fun if, if I'm not nervous. Why would I be, why would I be doing this? So it's just how, how is it possible to kind of show people by an example of those things that your mental capacity, your brain capacity are capable of, but it's so invisible. And I feel like it comes in a little bit in both ways. You know, when you see someone with physical disability, you always feel like, oh, I, I feel, you know, emotionally uh, a certain way towards, towards that person, but they can go through this emotional hell, but you will never be able to tell. And so I just want people to kind of understand a little bit both sides um, of the good and, and the bad, the, the, the invisibility of, of that and how maybe with some conversations, maybe a, a little bit broader conversation, 
and more complex conversation that can be understood a bit better because it's not simple things. It's not like, oh, you know what? Just do this for 30 days and you'll, and, and you'll be that. That's, that's not how it works. It's just some things work for other people. So you're always in this experimental state where then you find something that works, but then you still, you're always searching. And that kind of brings me back to beginning of our conversation where, where I asked you, how do you feel you as a student, you know, in your own, in your own uh, profession, but in life, it's like what it's kind of really is about is like always learning, always developing yourself. And in the conversation we start is the brain training. So I think that's all those things are a part of that, that help you to develop, to learn a better skill, to become excellent in a certain um, field that, that, you, that you do. And it's, it's possible for, for everybody. And as you said, I hope that people understand that, that you are not designed for one thing, even genetically, you're not designed for one thing. You're able to develop all those, you know, skills and tools to help you to grow and you know we people say you always have limitations and I don't necessarily think of those things as limitations is just your ability of how far you are able to push yourself and that's and when you can do that to a hundred percent of your ability that's that's what it is that's not that's not a limitation that's just who you are and how much you can develop yourself that's all yeah, cultivating, the way I think about it is cultivating our interior lives. Mm -hmm. So brain training, mind training actually is even higher than that. And that's what I want people to take away, the possibility based on your anatomy, your chemistry and your electricity, all surging and flying through your brain and your skull. Like that should leave you empowered that no triumph is forever and no tragedy yeah. is forever you know and that we can be new every day by giving examples and explaining the design that the goal of that is not to give people a shortcut but let people know that it's possible yeah how far you take it is based on a lot of things it's based on who you are it's based on where you are in your life if if you've lost a child that's quite the challenge compared to if you've lost your job. So taking people out of buckets and giving them the complexity to own and live inside their own interior lives. I can't tell when I see my patient from the outside mm -hmm. what they have gone through, how much they have suffered. Yeah. Uh, my cancer patients in particular, they hate the fact that when they lose their hair and other things, it's not just the loss of hair. It's that everybody knows that they're going through the cancer journey. And a lot of times they don't want to share that part of their interior life. They may not be at that point where they've processed it uh, and want to share it. So I, I love the concept of mind training, turning the attention inward, really choosing whether these emotions have a right to be in your mind. Those are big challenges, complex challenges. But this year, 2020, has put that on all of us. And I think it's kind of, you know, platitude or it's something that's common, commonly said is, but your, your competition is really with your former self. Yeah. And there's actually, um, I, I listen, 
I enjoy a lot of music, but when I write, I, I listen to rap music and there's a, you know, an album by 21 Savage and he's got this thing that says, I, his, I am, and then the greater two sign than I was. And to me, that's inspiring that that's possible. Otherwise, we would be, we would just be pattern recognizers and we would just go through life in search of essentials, food, reproduction. We are those things too, but we're more than that. We are our biology, but, but we're above our biology. And that's what mind training can do. And this year, you've seen that resilience. You've seen all those things. And resilience is an interesting topic. A lot of people think about it as like bouncing back. That's the engineering discussion. Resilience from mind, my, my perspective on it is not just getting back to where you were, but taking that challenge, taking those difficult times and actually becoming more, not better, but more, more fortified. And in some ways, inoculated from the pain that you have endured and survived. So when the next struggle comes, you have that memory of, I've been through that. I can get through that. And so psychological resilience is a much bigger concept than uh, engineering resilience. But I, I'm fascinated by those thoughts because I'm also trying to apply them to my life mm -hmm. um, to deal with my struggles and difficulties. It hasn't been easy. And, and, um, and it hasn't been necessarily hard. It's been very individual, my interior life. And just from our conversation today, my interior life is different. And, and talking with you has been, has been a joy. And I hope in 2021, we'll meet up for coffee in Minsk. I hope so. I've heard you talk about, you know, development of mental health problems within teens, right? That it's, it's one of the most sensitive times where those things do uh, develop. And why, why is that? the most like i would say vulnerable time so when you look at people who develop schizophrenia which is a very severe mental health issue they're at odds with their own identity and their sense of self it's that and uh, it tends to happen in the early 20s so late teens is where the hormones and the electricity and the anatomy and the the garden is at its most sort of explosive okay and then so you, that's usually, not always, but you get a higher rate of mental health issues that take root at that time. Okay. And then for the rest of your life, it's also a lesson, even though your mind may not be as, you know, it may not be surging as much. The same attention we paid in our teenage years to not drive dangerously or to tamp down the risks, I would say adults, however you define it by age, should also be asked to continue with mind training to cultivate new skills, to cultivate new perspectives, uh, to make the most of their adult life, just like we try to set boundaries on teenagers yeah. to make the most of their adolescent life. And it's also interesting because, you know, in sports, it's one of the topics that is is something that is a bit sensitive, I will say, is the kids in sport with like, you know, brain uh, uh, injuries, like football and stuff. And one of the, one of the things that I've uh, read about is the mini concussions in soccer uh, for kids and that they are uh, implying the new rule of 
um, banning the head kick for kids until a certain age and importance of it. And me, when I see, you know, young kids playing sports where contact sports is very, you know, obviously difficult to, to see. And I have, I have a son and obviously I don't ever want to limit him to abilities of things that, that, um, he wants to do, but I just feel like there's not enough awareness for, for the um, side effects of, uh, you know, kids and sports and stuff. And, um, so I, I really would love to kind of go further in that conversation, obviously today and, and later on, uh, because I think that's, that is so important. And now understanding and hearing you talk about the, the mental problems, how, how much they are more vulnerable in, in cultivating in teenagers, you know, there must be also a lot of connection between both of them, because from, from my studying on concussions, uh, of kids and, and also obviously, uh, other, other people that concussions can be different for everybody. Recovery process is different for, for everybody. So there is not one recipe where it's like a muscle, you, you know, you, you do this and that and that. So that, that's such also, again, a complex issue, but I feel like how can we bring a lot more light uh, to this? So people just have an awareness and understanding, and obviously everybody's going to make their own choices, but those are the things that need to be spoken about in the context of an examples and education. And, uh, yeah, I just feel like they have to be out there. Yeah. The, I, I don't, just like you said, I don't tell people what to do. My, my hope is to inform them so they make their own decisions. For some people, if their future is playing football, tackle football in the States, go for it. But you shouldn't be lied to that it's not dangerous. Yeah. And so I just think teenage years in general, all years, but especially teenage years, banging your head 150 times a day, it just doesn't make sense. You wouldn't do that with your knee or elbow. Why do that with your head? And the brain floats in an aquarium of fluids. So when you bang your head on something, the brain sloshes and hits the inside uh, of the skull. So we've talked about how delicate the structure is. And my feeling is inform people that concussions can occur. Inform people what the danger with concussions is. is it's repeatedly hitting your brain against the inside of your skull. Kids fall off of the kitchen counter or they get into car accidents with their families and they come in and they don't develop brain injury unless it's severe and sometimes we have to operate and that's a different category. But in general, you can handle a knock or two. Yeah. It's the repeated bumping yeah. 100 times a week for eight years that sets off this process of traumatic encephalopathy. For me, my sons didn't play football, they played baseball. I think that was a decision I could make for myself. If there was a lesson I would want parents to walk away with it's the second hit after you get a concussion that puts their life at risk so if a concussion happens and they go back in the game this is really dangerous yeah concussion happens you take them out for a week or two let the brain cool off and they go play and they get another concussion that is manageable but it's that second hit before you've recovered from the first one so parents on the sideline i mean american nfl we've got physicians on the sidelines who so have the best care, they have the best equipment, and they have medical staff on the sidelines. I'm more concerned about all around the country where kids are playing and it's just dads and moms on the sideline. There should be at least some 
understanding. Don't put them back in the game if they get a concussion, not that same day. As a parent, I became definitely a lot more sensitive towards this subject because I look at a lot of young kids and I, it's not, I'm not their mother, but I, I do feel the same emotion of like the care that, you know, of the, of, of the kids and being in sport myself, I haven't, I'm not in the contact sport, uh, but you do develop, you know, a lot of you know, things for your body that later on might not be that thankful to you. Uh, and, and I did, and I did have a concussion myself. I, I fell on the court once and I bumped my head and I remember, I remember that process, that process of recovery, uh, a bit, which was very weird. I felt fine, but at some point I felt like a bit woozy with my head. So, and so it was, it was uh, kind of interesting, but, you know, getting your kids to play the same day. And unfortunately there's a lot of, uh, you know, parents that, live their dreams through their kids where they don't maybe have that filter of safety uh, and uh, kind of looking for a long road and what's going to happen after uh, and stuff. So I, I would love to kind of develop this conversation in a larger um uh, at the larger point and, and, and take it further. Cause I think it's really, really important, um, to, yeah, to have that awareness for sure. I got a fun question for you. Yeah. Surgery is a two handed sport. Yeah. How, how come tennis, you can't just always hit a forehand by switching the racket to your left or your right. You know, how come you do a backhand rather than just be ambidextrous and some baseball players swing lefty or righty. Has anybody done that or is that against the rules for tennis? No, it's not against the rules. They have some players, but they've never got to an elite level. And I think it's more about you would, you would have to practice twice as more to develop, you know, that as a weapon twice. And there's quite more players who play the same backhand and backhand. So both sides, both, both hands. Um, and uh, in my case, for example, my backhand is better because I'm able to develop more, more speed with two hands and more power. And when I was a kid, and also, especially when you're a kid, I was very skinny. I didn't really have much power. It was easier for me to hit with two hands. Um, so, but I never been taught to hit with two hands here because it also limits your reach where you can stretch out. So I think there's more like technicality like, like that. Uh, but what's interesting is, um, there's a lot of, uh, players who are lefty with their, they play lefty, but they write with right, for example, and, and do things with the right hand, which is something for like my son, I wanted to, to not experiment. Cause then it's like, I wish I've somebody have taught me because I would have had more skill and try all different sports because that's also one thing I've played all different sports when I was a kid. So it developed me the coordination where I take something new now and it's easier for me to, to do it than, than something else. So I think that's, that's really cool. And, um, Hopefully he will he will follow my advice a bit. until a certain age he has no choice, but after that <laughs> I am. What a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. I have last little segment that I do with all my guests and it's just 
to get to know you a little bit better, it's very simple, few questions. There are literally one, one kind of one word answers. What is your favorite word? Nuance. What is one profession that um, besides your own, you would love to, to be able to do? Well, that's a good one. I've been I've been asked about this quite a few times about like what would you do, and so if I could, if I if I had the ability and the training, I'd like to be an NFL quarterback. But more realistically, I think I would have uh, I think I would have been a good firefighter or a detective, something physical and out there. Okay, that's cool. And what is one profession you would never want to do? Lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, what is uh what quality do does like uh you admire from people? Authenticity, even if it's flawed. Yeah. Okay, and what is one kind of um uh, characteristic that turns you off? Hateful people. I think it's the shortcut to nuanced and authentic emotions. Just hate as a re- response. I understand like if there are people who are animals, you might feel that you hate them. But I feel like the word hate and the way people are acting sometimes is just, it's such a simple and crude emotion. It lacks the nuance. So I don't, I don't, and it's, it's when I see people who've done well, they don't, sorry, it's too long of an answer. When I see people who've done well, it's, it's, they're never driven by hate and antagonism. It's, it's something that doesn't let people spiral upward, you know? That's true. Okay. And the last question, if you, if let's say God exists and you arrive at the pearly gates, what would you like the God to tell you? That I can, I can come in. Come on through. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, th- those are all my questions. So thank you so much for what a, what an amazing and insightful uh, conversation. I will have to read through it uh, and listen to it through it to kind of, you know, process all the information that I got, but it was such a, such a pleasure. And I've learned a lot today and uh, thank you. So thank you so much. The pleasure is all mine. You're an athlete and, and a scholar. So it's, it's a nice mix. So I hope I get to see you somewhere, maybe in Minsk, maybe in LA at some point. But uh, yeah, definitely we'll, we'll be in touch. Sounds good. What a pleasure. Thank you again for including me. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Think About It. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, Please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. This will help us to know what maybe other topics you guys want to hear or how you like the show so we can improve. This will be really, really appreciated. I'll be talking more about this podcast over on my Instagram. So please come and join the conversation with me there. Thank you. Thank you.